when I was in the first grade, I started a business. It was a one-man operation. And my, uh, um, my mom was uh, my driver, which will be important in, in just a minute. I, I started a business selling school supplies to lowly kindergartners. I had the uh, school supply list from the previous year when I was in kindergarten, and so I had this bright idea that I would have my mom, my driver for the business, take me to the store, loaded up on the school supplies at the store. I came home and I got out my red wagon, my radio flyer red wagon. Any of you guys have a radio flyer at a young age? Yeah, if you're over maybe 35 or 40, you might have had a radio flyer. This is one very similar to the one that I had. And so I'd get it out of, I got it out of the garage. I loaded it up with school supplies and I started pulling it around the neighborhood door to door selling those school supplies. This is a picture of me as a young entrepreneur. There I am. It's a first grade picture. And uh, one of the things that I discovered quickly is that my kindergarten friends were not very interested in school supplies. They hardly knew what school was, but uh, it was actually the kindergarten moms that had buying power. And uh, kindergarten moms are a pretty good customer because they're just a bit emotional about their kid going to kindergarten. And so they wanted the very best and all of it of school supplies. So I'd load up my wagon, drag it around the neighborhood, sell stuff in my wagon. Then I go back to the garage and load it up again. And when I was thinking about those years, those elementary age years for me, I, I, I felt like, you know what? This red wagon is a pretty good symbol pretty good illustration of those years. In many ways, my life was idyllic. Norman Rockwell, wagon-pulling kind of a life. I liked school. I enjoyed being with my friends. I uh, had a good relationship with my brother and sister. I loved to play outside all day. I was clearly handsome in those days. (laughs) I had a little bit of money from my business. You know, life is good. My parents were Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was the pastor of our church. Wasn't much that a young man uh, needed that I didn't already have. And because I was around Christian parents in a Christian home and I was around the church some, I began to understand some things about the gospel at a pretty young age. Understand the gospel is good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that God so loved us that he would send his son, that we might have relationship with him. And I wasn't aware in my life of some deep, sin issues in my life, wasn't aware of how I was selfish or moved away from God, not clearly. I I didn't have some deep void or or emptiness in in my life that is so common for those that trust Christ later in life, just a sense of of emptiness. That wasn't true in my life, but I I did think that that what I was hearing was good news. I did think that God loved me and, and I wanted a relationship with him. And so when I was 11 years old, I placed my trust in Christ. I was in the back seat of our old blue station wagon. My dad pulled into the garage. It was just he and I in the car. He turned off the car. I jumped up in the front seat. I had heard something about Jesus that I had a question about. And so I asked him my question. And it led to a conversation where my dad just explained the gospel to me. He talked about God being the creator of all the universe, including men and women. That he was the righteous creator, that there was no unrighteousness in him. He was perfect and holy and blameless. And that we as men and women, human, that that we were sinners. We were, in fact, unrighteous, could not stand up to the righteousness of God. We were unrighteous, but God provided a way still for us to have relationship with him. And that was through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. 
That righteousness was given to us when when Jesus Christ, those of us who trust in him, when Jesus Christ came to earth, fully God, fully man, he lived a perfect life, a perfectly righteous life on this earth. He died a gruesome death, was buried in a grave because he was dead, and then he raised on the third day, proving his power over sin and death. My dad looked at me and said, for those who believe in him, those who trust him, they can have relationship with God. That penalty has been paid. And so I said, well, yes, I I want that. I I believe, I trust Jesus Christ for my own salvation. And I told the Lord that in a prayer. In the early years of my life, the wagon pulling years, I, 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 I didn't know much about the gospel, but I knew enough to be saved. It's simple in that way. And it became the foundation, the gospel became the foundation for how God would continue to change me over the course of my life. You see, so often when we think about gospel, we assign it to a singular event in our lives. The moment we first believed, and of course that is true, that that is the gospel's power to save us. But there's actually something that more that's true about the gospel. See, the gospel has the power to save us, and the gospel, in a sense, is, continues to save us from ourselves. It sanctifies us. So it is, it is the core, the essence for which we believe, and then it is also the core, the power source for how we then grow. Theological terms are justification and sanctification. Justification simply is the one time legal act by God where he declares us not guilty, but righteous instead. Not on the basis of our own righteousness, right? But on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's imputed to us, it's credited to us when we place our trust in him. So this one time legal act, this legal standing, it changes in an instant for forever, but nothing about our character has yet changed, Right? We're saved, the penalty's been paid, We're, eternity is secure, but, but we are not yet changed at a character level. Enter sanctification. See, sanctification is the ongoing work of God with us by which we become more and more free from sin, that sin nature, and more and more conformed into the image of Christ. It's an ongoing process over the course of a lifetime. Sanctification is like peeling back the layers of an onion. You peer down into that and the gospel and all its many facets is is at the core of this onion. And as we peel it back in our lives, two things become very obvious to it at any given season. Become very obvious to us. One is, oh my gosh, my sin is way worse than I thought, right? My selfishness, the darkness in me, oh my gosh, the more I see the gospel for what it is, the more clearly I see myself. And the other thing we see, second, peeling back those layers. The other thing, we peer into the gospel. Oh my gosh. And the gospel, God's grace, God's grace is far more than I could ever imagine. Worse off than I ever thought I could be. And God's grace is far more than I could ever hope. That's what we see is the sanctifying process over the course of our lives by the power of the gospel takes root in us. It's the reason we hear people say, I preach the gospel to myself. I need the gospel every single minute of every single day. The reason for that is because the gospel is central to how we change. Here's a picture of me in my sophomore year of high school. 
And in this season of life, um, it was very different than the one that I just described a few moments ago. I pulled out an old photo album this last week, and I was looking through the pictures of it, 7th grade through 12th grade, all compiled in this one album. And I spent time on 10th, sophomore year through senior year of high school. And I noticed that in every one of those pictures, I was smiling just like this. But you know, there's a lot behind that smile. That smile is actually hiding something. You see, the truth is, during my high school years, the the truth is, is that I was a whole lot more like this ball. I had a huge smile on the outside, but I was empty, hollow on the inside. See, externally, people would look at me and say, man, that guy's happy. He's got joy. It's working. Life is working for him. But that actually was not true. So the exterior looked the part, it did. Externally, it was, I made good grades. I was a decent athlete. I had a respect of teachers and coaches and friends. Um, I, I, I knew Christ and understood the gospel, what it meant. It, it, it had saved me, but I was pretending to be happy. Everybody that knew me thought they knew me, but they didn't really actually know me. I didn't even know myself. And, and what was true about me was that I, I, I was responsible and respectful and compliant and dutiful, all those things, because I, I was actually still trying to save myself. In this sense, I, I was actually still trying to earn some standing with God. Like if I can be good enough, then God will be especially pleased with me. So I kind of put the salvation thing over here and I go, Yes, it's the gospel. Yes, it's trust in Christ. But there certainly is something that I need to add to that to really have deep relationship with God. Tim Keller says there, there are two ways we try to save ourselves in this life. I think he's right about this. Two ways that we try to become our own savior. One is, is that we make the personal pursuit of happiness the ultimate. So rules and morals and those things, they just don't really apply. It's, it's in essence trying to become our own God, our, our own savior. It's one way. The second way is this, is that we try to live a good life so that we will then have a good life. Follow all the rules so that in some way we can force God to be good to us. That doesn't work at all. It's like I'm doing my part. It only created an undercurrent of anger in me. I think it's true for most of us. Like, God, I'm doing my part, but you're not doing yours. Life isn't working out the way that it's supposed to work out. I, I was trying to save myself that way and I was empty inside. There's not much to show for it. In fact, it wasn't until college that I began to understand the true acceptance of God. That God actually accepts us for who we are. Just just who we are. Just, Just Bill. Just as I am, as the whole hymn says. Just as I am, that's acceptable to God. And that that began to be apparent in my life through relationships with a group of young men in my fraternity who are passionate about Jesus Christ. They accepted me and I began to understand the acceptance of God. They enjoyed life. They enjoyed the relationship with God. They found freedom in the relationship with God. And I began to find freedom in my relationship with God. Enjoying his presence. Enjoying who God had made me to be. Finding joy, in fact, in that way for the first time. It was significant for me. In fact, we had a verse 
in those days that we went to often, it was kind of a theme verse, Psalm 133.1. It says this, it says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And I experienced in unity, in community, as we've even talked about today, the goodness and the pleasantness, the peace that's found in relationship with God. And it was that community that led to ultimate community, at least humanly speaking. I I met my wife in college and we were married just a year after. And boy, was I in for a big surprise. I have pictures of the first two seasons in this season of our young married life. I have a video that I want you to see. Some of you may have seen this video before. I showed it six or seven years ago at Fellowship. I've heard recently that it's been floating around on, on Facebook, so you might have seen it there as well. But it's a great picture of the early years of our married life. It's shot at our reception. Hillary's mom, Carol, put it to music shortly thereafter, and I want you to see it this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. As you can see, I was not prepared for marriage. Not at all. I don't know if you noticed this or not in the commotion of it, but when Hillary went for the cake, when she went for the cake to save it, she almost stabbed me with the knife. I knew then that her priorities were very different than mine. You know, we, we did have a very good biblical understanding of marriage when we went into marriage. We had some great counsel, premarital counsel before we engaged in marriage. Our, our, our parents had stayed together for, for all those years. We had a great model for marriage. Um, we took it seriously. We took our vows seriously. We took marriage seriously. We, we had a good understanding of biblical marriage, but we did not know how to be married. Didn't know how to be married. I, I, I brought a uh, cake with me today as a symbol of this season of my life. And uh, I, it's a symbol of the years, certainly the young married years. Um, but it's also a great reminder of how aware I was in those years of my need for the gospel. Deeply aware in a new way. A need for the gospel, what quickly became apparent in our marriage was that I, I, I did not know how to truly love somebody else how to love me. I didn't really know how to love somebody else. You know what that looked like or what that meant. So I would try as best I knew in, in my understanding of a biblical marriage to provide and protect and serve. And all of those things are a part of love, certainly. But there was something missing for Hillary and I. We lacked an intimacy. We became very lonely, isolated in our marriage. And that's where the gospel began to invade my life in a new way. Became very aware of that in in my own life. Became very aware of the isolation and loneliness that each of us felt in our marriage. And I wanted to change that. It, It was not fun. It was hard. It was miserable in some ways. And so we engaged, I, I, I started talking to some friends of mine, some older mentors, some guys that gave some advice and some counsel. And I began to look back at the scriptures and what became very true for me in short order was that I did not know how to love because I had never actually received fully God's love for me. You can't give what you don't have. That became very apparent. So as I worked back through the scriptures with this idea of God's love in mind and What does it mean? What does it look like for God to truly love you? Not just in our heads that we get the gospel that God loved us so much that Jesus came. That's certainly true. But what does it mean at a heart level? It never really registered at a heart level for me. And God's love began to penetrate my heart. Looked at Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve. And 
God's creation. God creates all these things. He creates man and woman, and he calls them his most prized creation. It's very, very good. And all the rest of this for my most prized creation. Why? Because I love them far more significantly than everything else. Go to the book of Psalms. You see, in the book of Psalms, that we are, you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God paid attention to the detail. Each one of us unique. No other person that has ever walked the face of the planet or ever will, just like you, paid attention to the creation of you. Why? Because he loved you. Desires relationship with you. Of course, you go to, the, to Jesus' words in the gospel. I spent a ton of time in the story of the prodigal son. Always saw myself as the elder brother trying to deal with those kinds of issues that were duty and responsible and God owes me and all the things that are true about the elder brother, if you know the story. I never imagined myself in the position of the prodigal first time I ever have early in marriage. That I imagined myself as needing God's love. I spent a ton of time in front of a painting by Rembrandt, a copy of it, just staring into the depiction of the story of the prodigal son with the prodigal knelt before the father who has just run to him because the prodigal has begun to return home. Imagine myself in that stead with nothing to offer the father and everything to gain. Experience the depth of God's love in what is true actually about me. I want you to take your Bible out for just a moment if you would and turn to 1 John. 1 John's at the end of your Bible. You can go to Revelation if you want, work back. Past Jude, there are three Johns, one, two, and three. I'm in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 7. I'm going to read 7 through 11. 1 John 4, 7. You there? All right, 1 John 4, 7. Here's what John writes. I'll just make this comment before I read. It's impossible to overstate the connection of the gospel and God's love. That's what we're going to see here. Impossible to overstate the connection between God's love and his gospel. Look at this. God is love. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from who? God. Love is from God. God originates love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Very interesting comment there can't know love unless you know God. So everything that our world says is love, that we see in cells, all those things are actually not love at all. Here's the proof in God's text. Love can only be found in relationship with God. Those who know God are reborn or rebirthed, spiritually speaking, in God. Verse eight, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Now, I know this. I know many of us grew up in the church and we heard this often, Sunday school or whatever. God is love. I want you to think about that just for a minute. For if God is love, God in his very essence, the core of who God is, his nature, that is love. If God is love, then love is a person, is it not? Love is actually a person. It's the person of God. He, he can't help but love because that's who he is, can't give love away unless we know love himself. God is love. Verse nine, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. How? 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Cannot separate God's love from the gospel. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that is to pay the penalty for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Cannot know God apart from his love, cannot know God's love apart from the gospel. But when we understand the gospel, then God's love can make its way deep into our hearts, penetrate our hearts, our minds, even the works of our hands. And when that love penetrates us at the depth that God's intended, that God intended, length and the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love in us, then we can in turn love one another, our, my spouse in my case. We can love one another. Which leads me to today. Where is the gospel at work in my life today? Where's the gospel sanctifying me? And the answer to that question is actually best illustrated by a movie poster. It's best illustrated by this movie poster. How many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Yep, good. Did you like it? You right over there, little girl. Did you like it? Yeah. You liked it? Yeah, me too. I liked it too. Inside Out. Inside Out is a, is a uh, Disney movie. It's produced by Pixar. It is set in the mind of a young girl, 12-year-old girl named Riley Anderson, where five emotions are personified. Joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. And they lead her through this transition in her life where her dad takes a new job in a new city. So she leaves all that she's known for 12 years behind, neighborhood, friends, school, etc. And she makes this journey with her mom and dad to a new city. And what's fascinating about the movie is that there is more care, more concern given to what, what is going on inside Riley, her emotions, her thoughts, her affections, her motivations, what's going on inside Riley, then there is what's going on outside Riley. Certainly those things impact circumstances and all that, but this movie, this story pays attention to the inside. And that is where the gospel's at work in my life right now. Showing me that what happens on the inside, my emotions, my motivations, my deepest affections, those things are real. And those things are as important as what goes on on the outside of me. See, I've spent 41 years trying to work it the other way, trying to work the gospel the other way, as if in some case that I could actually change my behavior such that I do obey God and I follow him, then that somehow will change my heart. It hasn't worked. I've been inside the ball, empty, under the weight of the cake, Gospel wants more than that. It has more than that for us. The work of the gospel inside of us, it works its way from the inside out. Of course, oh, well, that's not brilliant. I, I, I've known that forever. God works from the inside out. Yes, yes, we know it. But do you know it? Have you experienced it? Have you lived it? The gospel actually changes. Here was, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Y'all know this, a branch on the ground doesn't bear any fruit, it's dead. But a branch that is connected to the vine, 
connected to the vine, that is personal, intimate relationship, understanding of God's love and God's grace, understanding of ourselves, our sin nature, and what God's done to redeem that by grace. When we understand that deep connection, personal depth of relationship with God, not just with our brains, but with our hearts, our whole being, wholehearted disciple or follower of Jesus Christ, when we know that, then the rich nutrients of the vine make their way into our lives in Christ, abide in him, make their way into our lives, and then they make their way out. They bear much fruit. I don't have time to go here and teach this today, but I've spent a lot of time lately in Mark chapter five through eight. This is Jesus' first series of miracles uh, that's recorded in the book of Mark. So Jesus has called his disciples. He has taught a little bit, and now this series of miracles begins to take place. The feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, and the 10 lepers that come, that come and are healed by him, one comes back. Series of miracles, and in a similar way to the, to the movie Inside Out, it, it's, it's funny to me, I've not ever noticed this uh, before, I made this observation before, but in every one of the miracle accounts, and I just gave you a few of them, but in every one, Jesus actually turns to his disciples and does something or says something. So the miracles certainly prove that he is the son of God. The miracles certainly are about engaging the hearts of the crowd that they might come and turn and follow him. But just as important in every one of those accounts is the heart of the disciple. And if you read through it, make some observations about it. I would just encourage you to look for the hardness of heart in the life of the disciples. Of course, their hearts stay hard until Jesus is resurrected and ascends into heaven. But the hardness of their heart here is just palpable. You can taste it. You can see it. It's obvious. I'll give you one example. Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, he teaches all day. The feeding of the 5,000 was actually probably more like 15,000 people. What's recorded in the account in Mark is actually 5,000 men. So this big crowd, Jesus has been teaching all day long. He finishes teaching near dusk and his disciples say to him, hey man, great ministry day. Got it, we nailed it. Hey Jesus, you were on today, it was great. And then then they say, hey, let's get out of here. I'm starving. Let's go eat, we'll get in the boat. We'll go back across the lake. We'll go to our campfire, we'll eat. You know, great day, we'll get back at it tomorrow. And Jesus says, well, what about these people here? They've been sitting here all day just like you. They need to eat. Of course, Jesus does this incredible miracle. He feeds them all and disciples are amazed. Oh my gosh, that's incredible what Jesus did. And then Jesus turns to them and he goes, you don't get it. All this out here that I just did, certainly it's for the heart of the people, but I'm after your heart. See this in there. I'm, I'm actually after your heart, the love and the compassion that I just demonstrated to these people, you don't have. You're ready to go. And unless you give me your heart, unless you understand my love and compassion for you, and then you in turn begin to give you my heart, I can't give you all of my own heart. And I want that for you. You need that for you. And so gospel is showing me the depths of my own heart right now. Gospel compels me to match my spirit spiritual life with my emotional life, not just the work of my hands, not just my understanding of scripture, but all of it. Those things would be matched, my emotional life, my spiritual life. That that I would actually live, that my behavior would flow from my affections, not the behavior and then hopefully my heart will change. No, that my affections will be so deep in Christ that my behavior will follow. Motivations will lead to my actions that I would actually live life then not overemphasizing the outside, but from the inside out, both are true. 
I have a question for you this morning. I just want you to take a minute to answer it personally before the Lord. Where is the gospel at work in your life right now? There's God at work to sanctify you. I want you to think about this just for a minute. Uh, There's some of you in here that have not placed your trust in Christ. Maybe you think you're saved and you're not sure. Maybe you're in here, just walked in, somebody invited you and maybe not ever heard the gospel clearly. Maybe your step of faith where God's after your heart right now is just to say, "I, I think I might believe that. I want to place my trust in Christ. And I'll encourage you to do that in these quiet moments. Just tell him that you want to place your trust in his son and you want relationship with him and you need forgiveness for your sin. Repent of that and by faith you're changed. Legal standing changed in an instant. And then you might just tell somebody, what what do I do next? What do I do now? Many of us have trusted Christ in here. And I'd encourage you to think about it this way. Where's the Lord after your heart right now? What part of your heart have you kept reserved from him? Sectioned off? Is he convicting you, inviting you to know more of his love, his grace, his truth? Take a minute right now. Go before the Lord and answer that question. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in each of our lives to prompt us, to guide us, to convict us, to show us where the power of the gospel might be at work to change us, transform us, to make us more free from sin and things that we tend toward and more conform to the image of Jesus Christ. We know that that brings glory to the Father. And we know that we can't will it. We can't make it happen. But we can turn our affections to you. We can ask you to show us. We can trust your spirit to lead us. And we know that he, you, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it over the course of a human lifetime and then for eternity with you. We will be seen, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who gave his life that we might know you and know you more and know you more and know you more. We want that. Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand up and I'm going to send us out. You likely did not know this as I taught this morning, but my gospel story is actually a setup to our next series. We're going to spend five weeks on the gospel out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul's words, all the many facets of the gospel that does save us, that transforms us, that leads to glory, our own glorification, the glory of God, how we live that out, it is a rich text. And we'll see in it, even as I've seen in my own life, that the gospel is even more, even more than we ever hoped. That will be true for the rest of our lives. And we will dig in this week. And so read it this week, those 11 verses, read over that a couple of times, and come ready to experience the indescribable joy of God's grace. I can't wait, truly. We'll see you next week.